now is the time of monsters. So what better time to talk about anti-fascism and criticism? This is Reading in the Time of Monsters, episode 12. I'm your host, Peter, and this is a solo episode. I'm trying to mostly do episodes with guests, and I have pretty significant number of guests I'm pretty excited about to come on. August is something of a dry month, I think, for a lot of people. It's a pretty busy month for me. It's my birthday month, as they say. I like to uh, put on a pretty uh, good-sized birthday party, and I give a birthday lecture. I always give a lecture every year at my birthday party, something in the history of ideas, and I gave, I wrote and gave a lecture this year, and I might post, I'm certainly going to post it to my Substack, and I might just release it as a podcast episode too. So I've been up to a lot of different things, but I'm trying to get back into the swing of podcasting, so I thought I would do a solo episode, even though I'm mostly trying to do interviews and discussions with others. Also, I want to talk about this this issue, this relationship between two activities I take pretty seriously, two more than activities for me, ethoses, ethoi, we want to go Greek with it, um, things that are important in my life, criticism, which is what this podcast is dedicated to in anti-fascism i'm inspired to do this by a minor foo on social media that i'll address later on but the topic also gets into some of the ways that i approach criticism and some of the weaknesses that i see in the broader critical conversation that i would like this podcast to help address and you can kind of you can think of this episode as being in line with some of the programmatic statements that I made about this podcast, about my critical project more broadly, that you can hear in episodes one and three of this podcast that I made. I mean, less than a year ago, a few, you know, maybe six or so months ago, when I started, and I tried to lay out what I was doing. Like I said, episode one, I'm a socialist and. I'm an active socialist. I, it's not only a belief for me. It's something I pursue actively in the world through organizing, organizing with socialist groups, labor organizing. And one of the main streams that I found myself organizing in in the last seven years or so has been anti-fascism. That deserves some definition. When I say anti-fascism, I don't mean simply a dislike or opposition to fascism, though that is also a thing that's important. I mean activity, and this activity can be anything from writing theory to street protest, though primarily goes more towards the active in the material realm uh, side of activity. These activities that take part in an active struggle against the fascist right that aims to deter or defeat the fascist project and or to build up the capabilities that are 
that are needed to defeat defeat fascism. So I do consider myself an opponent of capitalism, which is what socialism is about. I do regard anti-fascism as a socialist value that we should all adhere to to one degree or another. But more specifically, I see it as the active effort to defeat fascism. This, of course, gets into the old definitional problem of what constitutes fascism. I'm a historian. I've read a lot of the extended historiographical debates about the definition of fascism, and I appreciate those debates. I've learned a lot from them. That said, for practical purposes, I define fascism as a political formation dedicated to violent, redemptive ultranationalism. Now, most of those things, violence, redemption narratives, nationalism, and ultranationalism, usually are not that great on their own, but combined, they they make for a uniquely destructive form of politics that no one of goodwill, not just those on the left, should countenance, should allow to take hold, to take power, or to threaten to take power, or to threaten our movements. Fascism is a threat in an existential way that I don't think, say, conservatism is, uh, even though the boundaries between the two are more or less porous, depending on where and when you are. We'll get into why I think that later. Uh, Fascism has a tendency, as it grows more powerful, to suck in other movements and forces on the right, Sometimes also elsewhere on the political spectrum, if it, if it gets really big and really powerful. And anti-fascism involves combating those forces as well, insofar as they are attached to fascism, adjuncts to fascism, and so on. In my time as both an anti-fascist and as a critic, I found myself disappointed and sometimes baffled by the choices made by writers they regard as being, for the most part, ideological, ideologically sympathetic. Leftists, left liberals, socialists, some cases anarchists, what have you. These writers often dismiss anti-fascism as being essentially sub-intellectual. They would all agree that fascism is bad. Most would agree that it's a good idea to do some kind of organizing against fascism. Some of them have more vociferous, specific, expressed grievances against anti-fascists than they seem to have against fascists. I think this enters into some of the specifics of how organized movement anti-fascists established itself in the American country in the last few years. We can talk more about that later. The common thread I see among, for lack of a better term, anti-anti-fascist left-leaning intellectuals is a refusal to consider anti-fascist perspectives on intellectual questions touching the right and its history. I think it's one thing to disagree that anti-fascism has much to offer on a given problem. I think that's fine. I think you don't need my permission to decide which Perspective is most useful for tackling a given problem. But I think it's another to consistently refuse, if you are a leftist, to consider that anti-fascism might offer some perspective. And I see that 
across the board, it feels like sometimes. The issue here is less that it's unfair to anti-fascists, though it is, and I don't know, I don't like that. I think it's rude. Uh, the issue here that I want to highlight is that this uh, inability to take anti-fascist perspectives on board comes to interfere with the analysis of people who ought to know better. It causes them to say, in some cases, do things that really don't make a lot of sense according to their own stated values. Uh, they wind up making mistakes, and rather than accept even gentle correction and attempt to rethink things, these writers and critics usually dig themselves further into mistaken and uh, being frank, often embarrassing positions, rather than admit that an anti-fascist might at some point, because of their anti-fascism, have known more about something than them, right? They, the established left intellectual, decides who knows what and what is valuable knowledge, and they, and they decide who gets to contribute perspective. Anti-fascists don't, is, seems to be the view of a honestly disturbingly large portion of uh, what you could call kind of establishment leftism such as it exists. I've seen this uh, from a number of popular left-leaning intellectuals, some of whom I admire. Here I would cite Corey Robin, Rick Perlstein, and the two figures who motivated me to do this podcast now as opposed to some other time. And that's Matt Sitman and Sam Adler-Bell, the hosts of Dissent Magazine's Know Your Enemy podcast, which is a podcast that covers conservatism and the right uh, from a critical perspective that Sitman and Adler-Bell have allowed the, and I'm, I'm going to call it what I think this anti-anti-fascism is, I think it's intellectual cowardice. I think it's intellectual cowardice that is enabled uh, by the smug security of those who have garnered some sort of paying position in the intellectual world. Uh, and they've allowed it to undermine the basic premise of their show, that they know their enemy. Well, I think when we talk a little about some recent uh, issues on the show, we'll see that maybe they don't know their own enemy all that well. And maybe they refuse to take on perspectives that might allow them to know their enemy better. And that's just one of the ironies that we're going to see. But this is, I think, more than about one podcast, and I'd like to say right out of the bat, a much more successful, much more smoothly produced and regularly produced podcast than mine. So I think that deserves to be at least stated up front uh, so as to get it out there. Maybe this is all motivated by jealousy, who's to say, but um, I don't think that's entirely it. It's not just about this one podcast. It's not just about a few guys, and it is usually guys for whatever reason. Um, but I, I want to return to two themes I discussed in some of the earlier podcasts where I kind of laid out my program. Uh, one theme is commitment. I talked about how there was this lack of commitment in the writing, uh, particularly literary writing, a almost a fear of 
laying one's values on the or or other cards i guess you could say on the table of uh certainly a political commitment though that waxes and wanes but really any kind of uh commitment existentially or culturally or what have you and here we really can't say that's the case right uh i actually do take leftists or i would kind of use left liberal but classifications really don't matter I, I would take the likes of Sitman and Adler Bell and all the rest of them at their word that they believe what they say and that they are committed to some sort of vision of left-ish social progress uh, I do think as it happens that their fear of uh, engagement with some with those outside of what they try to unilaterally define as the acceptable boundaries of the left uh, tends to show their commitment is perhaps being less important than their intellectual comfort. But I don't think they're making up the idea that they are committed leftists or liberals. Uh, several of the people I'm talking about have done organizing work, labor organizing, tenant organizing, what have you. And that counts for something. I think it counts for a lot. Rather than a simple inability to commit to anything, I think we see more of an effort by these men. And again, largely men. Uh, I have known some women in this category, but they're less prominent. Uh, I think these are men who live by defining and elaborating concepts, and they are attempting to strategically define the concept of commitment in such a way as to avoid uncomfortable confrontation. In here, you might think I mean an uncomfortable confrontation with a screaming MAGA chud on the streets. And as it happens, I don't think that. And we'll get into why that is uh, when I talk about anti-fascist practice. What I'm really talking about is an intellectual confrontation with the limitations of their own vision and their own methodologies. I think that's a lot more uncomfortable for people who live by reputations for intelligent commentary than is oh you might be expected to go to a rally and uh get yelled at um the other concept that i want to use to organize my thoughts here and that i also talked a certain amount about earlier is contempt right i said in these earlier episodes that the, the sort of fecklessness of contemporary literature is honestly a much less severe problem than the contempt that many practitioners of contemporary literature and criticism clearly have for any idea of the world as being bigger or more interesting or more involved than the worlds that they come from as they define them. A lot of good books, after all, have been about or by feckless assholes with no real commitment to much of anything other than nursing their bullshit. But what kind of literature are you going to get out of contempt for the idea that the world has anything meaningful to offer outside of, and here you can pick your poison, right? The upper middle class, uh, social media, uh, the writer's circle of friends and associates, and family, I suppose, outside of, you know, the neoliberal university, outside of a small handful of cities, right? Outside, in general, of of these ideas and values, the small really pretty small, however big they might think they are, uh, worlds that they create for themselves where things outside are at best kind of window dressing, maybe a vague threat, but not really real, right? From David Foster Wallace down to Lauren Euler, um, 
I don't think these writers necessarily love the worlds in which they're in. In fact, they pretty sincerely get across a sense of alienation from these worlds, right? That's a point of kind of the internet writers, your Oilers and your Patricia Lockwoods. It's a point of the transgressive writers who sort of made the jump to mainstream success like Brad Easton Ellis. I think it's a point of uh, David Foster Wallace's work and so on. But the idea that there's anything outside of these worlds from which they might be sincerely alienated, that there's any way to live or think really differently from how they live and how the people around them live and think, it's not just one that this literature disagrees with. It's not like an earlier earlier generations of literature that tried to illustrate the folly of thinking differently, living differently. Here I'm thinking of some of the works of liberals in the 50s, your Lionel Trillings. Uh, you could argue that um, uh, uh, Wilson, um, the big fella, blanking on his first name, uh, in Memoirs of Akade County and some of his other works, uh, also uh, participated in this literature of Mary McCarthy and the group of if you have ideas outside of our norm, then you're uh, an idiot and or morally bankrupt and or just likely to fail, right? This isn't that. It's more that it cannot countenance our literature of fecklessness cannot countenance another type of world that at the best you can get representatives of the other world as, or any other type of world, as maybe kind of cartoonish threats. You can get them as parodies, right? An effigy to be kind of stomped out uh, before life as it really exists, as in, you know, the anodyne life of the educated upper middle class goes forward. But most often, simply excluded from the conversation if you really took on board the possibility of a life lived meaningfully differently and continuously, then you'd have to, you'd have to change your approach, right? Because to me, this contempt is animated by fear. Sometimes it really is fear of the other. Some of these people are clearly just scared of people who live differently from them. This often takes the form of they're scared of foreigners. They're scared of people with different ideas. Often they're scared of the domestic foreigner, so to speak, which kind of combines both, whether it be black or brown people in some cases, or especially since 2015, the hostile white folks. Uh, and here I'm not talking about people of color writers writing about them. I'm talking about white writers talking about the perceived Trump base. But more often, I think the fear in question is that of the acknowledgement of something different from the standards that obtain wherever they are. And it varies somewhat from, you know, Brett Easton Ellis's dinner circuit to Patricia Lockwood's Twitter stream, and that these other ways of being might in some way invalidate their standards. They might show up the foundations of these worlds that they've built and often hermetically sealed as fraudulent or as immoral or as i think is most likely simply as arbitrary of the way that they live the way they think the way they talk 
the way they write, the way they act, the way they interact with others, their ideas of history, psychology, economy, values. The world is what I'm talking about. More or less everything barring basic uh, scientific principles of how things go. Um, that they would be that 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 their visions of these worlds are actually very narrow, very silly, and easily exchangeable, right? That they don't actually have to live with them, especially considering how many of them repeat over and over again how alienated they are from these worlds that they have. Let's call it what it is: chose. I can only think of one writer who made unswerving and often rather queasy and self-hating devotion to his narrow way of life and his sheer terror of anything outside of it into actually good art intermittently. And that was H.P. Lovecraft. I don't think our contemporary novelists usually get there. I think in a way parallel to our novelists, our establishment left writers from Descent to Jacobin to social media provocateurs who always somehow wind up with the most enervating, immobilizing ideas for a movement meant to mobilize masses of people, I think they use contempt to mask fear. No one thinks that Antifa is going to draft tenured professors or professional podcasters to man the front line when Patriot Front comes to town, okay? And the much ballyhooed fear of anti-fascist censorship is also a crock of shit, and we'll talk about why that is later. What they're afraid of these political writers is the same thing that the novelists are afraid of, that their way of doing things and looking at things might be shown up, not necessarily even as wrong, because there's many ways to be, but as something other than a necessary and sufficient way for them to be, that maybe they could be different. Maybe they could think differently. Maybe something from outside of their ambit. And here I don't, just mean the way that they specifically live, the way they specifically think, the books they like, the ideologies they hold, but the others within their life world. And we'll talk about why that's an important distinction, that there might be some sort of meaningful options and choices outside of that. Um, And With that, I think, comes the implication that they might have chosen already and possibly incorrectly. And I think that's something that's difficult for people. And I base this on several years' worth of experience. I know that experience is not... Arguments from experience are tricky because it's non-transferable. I can't make you have had the same experiences that I have. I can document them to a certain extent. I can try to get them across to you. Uh, But I do think that it informs, well, I know that it informs my perspective and my practice, and we will see whether I could get across why I think it's a larger problem. So let's get the kind of social media scuttlebutt out of the way. So Know Your Enemy. It's a podcast. It's put out by Descent. Um, it's uh, two writers, Matt Sittman, Sam Adler-Bell. Sittman, I think, is some kind of an academic. 
Adler Bell might be an academic, might be a journalist. In general, they're in the sort of dissent magazine-ish, social democratic, democratic socialist, left liberal, probably varies, different positions, different days, different uh, nuances. They're, they're, they're very nuanced types. I mean that not entirely as uh, an insult, as some people do when they say nuanced. Uh, and they look at conservative and right-wing thought, culture, politics. Um, and I've been listening to it for a while. I actually, it's funny, if you want another piece of evidence that I'm an axe grinder, I don't think that's all I'm doing, but I do believe in trying to put out there the possibilities of how I'm wrong that I could that I could see. Uh, I was actually at the roughly the same time that Know Your Enemy came out thinking about trying to do a podcast on the history of the right for the left, that I would go through the right-wing canon starting in the period of the French Revolution, working my way down, kind of inspired by the podcast, The Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, or the Schwepp, where the main line of it is just this one guy, Earl Fontenelle, historian of esoteric or occult thought, starting with the pre-Socratics and working his way one at a time down the line. Uh, very exhaustive history of Western esotericism, occult thought in the West. He also does, he interweaves now uh, episodes outside of the main line, but he keeps that main line, tempor temporally speaking. So he talks about modern stuff too sometimes. But mostly he's just going down the line. And I kind of admire that. That's not the approach that Know Your Enemy takes. And I don't think they have to. The world's probably not missing that much from the podcast that I decided not to do when in large part, uh, it, it, at least in some small part, due to uh, Know Your Enemy started to come out at the time I was thinking about it. Because I, at the time I was also trying to formulate the idea of my reading the right podcast as right a know your enemy type of thing you should know what these people think so that you can counter them more effectively uh now i actually think know your enemy has some pretty good episodes it's not one of my favorite podcasts uh but it's certainly it was certainly good enough for me to listen to good enough for me to contribute my five dollars a month to for some time i've since decided to not do it uh for reasons that will probably be evident uh so hard to know where exactly to start with this other than explain what the podcast is i guess we'll start with a few weeks ago depending on when you're listening to this podcast a staffer for the ron DeSantis presidential campaign a 20 something somewhere like i don't know 23 25 uh named nate hawkman one of his staffers uh was fired from this campaign after posting several videos onto kind of campaign-related social media accounts. These videos, we can call the style alt-right-inspired, featured Nazi symbols like the Sonnenrad, paramilitary imagery, fictional serial killers, homophobia, uh, barely masked racism and anti-Semitism, you name it. It was, it was straight up, you know, 2016-type alt-right agitprop. Uh, it turned out that Hawkman likely made these videos himself and the DeSantis campaign fired him. Now, the reason why this is relevant is because Nate Hawkman also happened to guest star on an episode of Know Your Enemy in December of 2021. The two hosts, uh, one of whom uh, 
uh, Matt Sitman, and maybe the other one too, I, I don't quite remember, referred to Nate Hawkman as a young friend of theirs. Uh, I believe they're both a little bit older than me, the two hosts, so maybe late 30s, early 40s. I, I don't know. They might be older than that. Might be younger too. Um, they interviewed Hawkman in order to get a feel for what, in their terms, a smart, young right-winger was thinking and feeling about the course of the conservative movement, where it was going, what his fellows were thinking, uh, so on and so forth. Hawkman was also one of several people who was uh, used as a source or profiled at that time in other outlets like the New York Times in trying to discuss a new conservatism, a national conservatism, conservatism that leaves behind the idolatry of the free market and of Cold War bromides in favor of one or another vision of national greatness. Um, you've, if you're listening to this, you've probably seen profiles like that. Uh, probably pretty familiar with it. Like a few listeners to know your enemy, I was not wild about this episode at the time. This was December 2021. I have complicated feelings in general about how to go about talking to right wingers in a you know polite kind of way. I'm not 100% opposed to it, but like I said, it's complicated. We'll go into it. Like many listeners, I thought that the two hosts were several degrees too friendly with Hawkman, that they were uh, softballing him, basically, that they didn't follow up on some questions that might have pressed him more. And the, the thing is, we're going to get into how the hosts responded to this. And so every time... I find myself making a criticism. I'm thinking of the straw man versions of those criticisms that the hosts later stood up in their quasi mea culpa, but pass that. Above all, I thought the premise of the interview and about other pieces that involved Hawkman and at this point, something like 10 years, maybe more worth of, oh, wow, look at these smart young conservative articles is just wrong. Nate Hawkman doesn't strike me as all that smart. He didn't strike me as very smart in November, uh, December 2021. He certainly didn't strike me as smart when he got shit canned from a presidential campaign because he couldn't stop himself from posting Sonnenrad memes. That's not a smart thing to do by most measures. Uh, in the interview, I found him predictable. I found his talking points to be shallow, to be cardboard thin. I found him... Uh, palpably insincere. I had heard everything he had said before. I had heard the culture war bromides. I had heard the pants wedding about Black Lives Matter. I had heard the insincere demurring uh, when he was prodded ever so gently by the hosts, one of whom is a gay man, uh, about his dehumanizing ideas about LGBTQ and especially trans people. I had seen before that really just unbelievably thin pretense of economic populism that these people do, and so had the hosts. Uh, they, they had discussed things like this before. Uh, none of this seemed sufficiently insightful to merit wasting time on this specific guy. I don't. I don't feel like I knew the enemy or the right in general any better after having listened to the interview, and it seemed like uh, giving this kid's career a bump. 
for very little benefit. Uh, that said, I didn't really mind. I didn't really feel a need to comment at the time. I kind of figured, well, you know, liberals gonna liberal. Apparently, they don't always like being called liberals, but I'm. Uh, they don't really uh, seem to care that much about what I have to say anyway. So, anywho, uh, so fast forward to this summer, Hawkman. Uh, posting his Nazi meme videos on behalf of Ron DeSantis. Uh, some people got in touch with the Know Your Enemy hosts who are active users of social media, such as Twitter, and they wanted to know what the hosts thought, how they planned to react. And I was one of them. So I got a Twitter this year in an effort to boost the podcast. I don't do a very good job of it. I don't like Twitter. Twitter, in any of the times I've tried it, from roughly 2008 onward. I've never had fun with it. I understand that 2023 is an especially bad time to get on it. I don't like loading it. I don't usually like reading it. I don't like uh, trying to network on it or whatever the fuck you're supposed to do. In any event, here I thought, though, I might be able to constructively engage, as they say, because... I didn't want to just go up to these two guys I don't know and give them pablum about how we shouldn't platform the right, right? Whether we should, whether we shouldn't, whatever, but they've heard all that before. I had a suggestion, which was you should have an anti-fascist on the show, uh, that you should have someone on the show who has maybe a somewhat different perspective, but still within the ambit of the left uh, and discuss the right way to go when it comes to uh, gaining insight into and from the right, including how to go about sensibly uh, platforming, if you want to call it that, uh, voices from the right. Uh, here's well, again, in the interest of declaring my, my errors and my possible biases, like probably a foolish person, I said that I would be willing to be one such guest because I've written about anti-fascism in dissent, among other places, which hosts their podcast. I did not lead with that. I actually led with saying that there are a number of other people I could put them in contact with uh, who have done on-the-ground organizing or have done anti-fascist organizing or significant journalism or study of the same. People like Daryl Lamont Jenkins, Talia Levin, Shane Burley, uh, numerous, numerous people who could have done a good job. Um, anyway, but I, I did say, I did volunteer myself as well, because I figured it's better to not exclusively volunteer people. Uh, so I figure if they chose, uh, the hosts and their supporters could say, well, uh, this Ritom guy was just doing it to boost his podcast. Um, I don't know. Well, you can believe that if you like. Anyway, Twitter is Twitter. I have a low follower account. I don't post often, so the hosts ignored me. They depict themselves as having caught a lot of flack at the time. Um, I thought that I would uh, press it and see if I could yield a response by being more aggressive. I've had good luck with that actually once or twice with social media, most notably at a time when the uh, reporter from the online magazine The Intercept uh, quoted me, quoted a private Facebook post of mine. Uh, I'm not friends with this reporter. I wanted to have some idea of how he got 
their his hands on my Facebook post. I honestly wasn't that upset by it. I was more just curious. I, I understand that when you post things to the internet, people can screenshot them, people can quote them. I'm not crazy about that stuff. It's just sometimes I like to have a filter on my Facebook posts, mostly for mood. There's people in my life who I don't want to flaunt my anger at all the time or my, you know, my sarcasm, uh, militancy, whatever else, other things that say uh, old family friends might find troubling coming from a boy they remember as, you know, a a sweet child. Uh, But I still want to know. I wanted to have some vague idea. I didn't get like a name of who shared that with Ryan Graham, but he, you know, I prodded at him gently, but, you know, firmly and politely and I kept at it and he eventually told me something. So I had had success with this. I tried it. I'll admit I was probably overly aggressive uh, with Matt Sipman. And that was the first block I've ever noticed I had on Twitter. Alas. Uh, um, so, you know, so much for uh, trying to, trying to pitch these guys. Certainly, certainly for my benefit. A few days ago, know your enemy posted a podcast episode about the situation with Hawkman. And I think here it's worth pausing to discuss the backgrounds and, for lack of a better term, the personae of the two hosts. Matt Sitman, I believe, is an academic political philosopher, and he is a former conservative. He was around in the sort of Clinton-Bush era, right as kind of a bright young thing, uh, a Straussian. He is a convert to Catholicism, having been raised some sort of fundamental Protest- fundamentalist Protestant in rural Pennsylvania. He's a gay guy. He talks a lot about his background, which is one reason I bring it up a lot. And he generally serves as notionally the gentler mellower of the two. He has a much more pleasing radio voice and his co-host, and certainly much more than mine. Uh, his great friend, as he puts it, Sam Adler Bell. And here I'd like to say that I, I do think the two have a really fine rapport, which made the show the good episodes much more pleasant to listen to. Uh, Sam Adler Bell, in turn, to the extent he plays up his background, it says a Jew from the New York area, lifelong kind of left liberal, leftist, whatever you want to say, a non believer, I think religiously, uh, more sarcastic, more irreverent, voice to match, not unpleasant, but. Uh, not the sort of soothing tones of a, of a Matt Sitman. Um, so there's reasons I'm highlighting uh, this, this sort of background and demeanor stuff. Uh, the hosts really thoroughly mobilize them, particularly the Sitman persona. And I'm not saying it's fake. I'm just saying you choose what elements you put forward when you are performing in a podcast episode, including this one, is a performance but I think they very thoroughly mobilized their respective personae, especially the Sitman one, in this episode, explaining the Hawkman situation. I don't even think it was necessarily strategic uh, that they did so. But if we were going to uh, reduce their episode to its positive arguments about the Hawkman situation, it would be that Hawkman did not make clear the depths of his extremism in December 2021, that they thought of him as a never-Trump conservative, a la Jonah Goldberg, who Huckman had worked for. Uh, And then, more importantly, that the purpose of Know Your Enemy is educational. They want to draw out what they could learn from Huckman, so they couldn't be adversarial, they couldn't be nasty, 
right? You want a good radio show, right, folks? You don't want us to just stomp on this guy whenever he says anything we disagree with. But these positive points are really more scaffolding than anything else. Uh, for negative points and also for the establishment of an ethos. And this is where kind of the persona stuff really comes into its own. Uh, they repeatedly cited uh, the hosts, what they seemed to believe the criticisms of their position and actions were. They only quote, as far as I remember, one critic who, who remains anonymous, which is fine. I'm not criticizing that. Uh, and the rest, they paraphrase the idea that they should never give a platform to someone like Hawkman, that they should have uh, displayed outrage, they should have argued harder, uh, that neither host should know Hawkman or be friends with him. And they chalk up these arguments to uh, the audience misunderstanding what their show is for. Uh, and above all, I think there was a sort of emotional display, mostly from Sitman, uh, attempted to establish... Uh, an ethos, uh, while also delivering sort of argument, arg argumentative thrust via ethos, right? Their argument is maybe we messed up a little, but we really didn't mess up uh, by having Hawkman on and by not really pressing him on things. Uh, we, we did everything right, more or less, and whatever we did wrong was due to good intentions. And actually the people criticizing us are kind of meanies. Uh, is the basic thrust of their argument, and it's the ethos that gets it across, right? Sitman likes to bring up his time as a young conservative, and it certainly comes into play here, right? He says, he talks about how much of himself he saw in Nate Hawkman, that his relationship to the younger man was an effort to gentle his stances, to perhaps move him to better political positions, uh, Simmons' Christianity comes up. Uh, he says that the point of knowing your enemy, like the title of a podcast, is to love your enemy. How can you love your enemy if you don't know him? And Wax is, I'll say it, lugubrious on the tension that he feels between a politics of responsibility, where one needs to bring consequences uh, to, to those that they oppose, and... Uh, the religion of Christianity and its ethos of unconditional love. Uh, above all, both Sitman and Adler Bell uh, are trying to appeal to a vision of intellectual life where the flow of ideas and inquiry clashes with the cut and thrust of the political arena, right? Uh, Sitman and to a lesser extent Adler Bell, they're kind of the man in the middle, right? In their own depiction, they're considering everything, all the sides, they're engaging with the tensions, right? This, this agonizing tension between I want to learn what there is to be taught by a 23-year-old Nazi, but I also disagree with them about stuff, and I want to make a good radio show. I mean, I'm just scratching the fuck out of my chin here, right? Um, you know, uh, unlike us lesser folk, right? They engage with the tension. But people like me, people like anti-fascists, and they're, you know, the, the usual, uh, that, that stock non-character, the Twitter mob. Uh, they don't call it a mob, but that's, that's essentially what they're getting at. Uh, you know, these anonymous uh, people with fewer followers than they have who probably aren't paid to wax uh, intellectual like they are, 
you know, people like us, we would, we would, we would not feel the tension. We would not have the fine sensitivity of our hosts. We would cut it like a Gordian knot or some such thing, right? Um, so they'll grant, they'll grant that uh, maybe a one or two points. They could have pushed Hawkman more. They grant that if they weren't white men, though so again, uh, you know, Sitman being gay, uh, Adler Bell being a Jew, and of course both being leftists. They do have a certain amount of, as they say, skin in the game, but they do grant that maybe if they were people of color or some such thing that they might have felt differently about the whole thing. In the end, though, uh, they both decide that uh, they were right, that they were, that they did everything right. And that, uh, you know, and that's where sort of Adler Bell's uh, sarcasm uh, comes in, some weak uh, jibes at uh, the haters and so on. Um, So... uh, Again, I'm going to reiterate, I don't think that either Sitman or Adler Bell were necessarily insincere um, in the stuff that they said. I think that they really believe what they were saying. I'm certain that they did get those criticisms. I'm sure somebody happened upon Twitter, uh, opened opened their replies and said to the hosts, you shouldn't be friends with Nate Hawkman and said, you shouldn't platform Nate Hawkman and said, you should have been more argumentative i'm sure those things happened um and probably happened frequently uh i i also so so the problem here isn't dishonesty as such in fact uh matt sitman repeatedly interjects during the course of this podcast episode how he quote had to be honest unquote or words that effect uh and that was inevitably followed by him telling his audience how wrong they were to see a given aspect of the Hawkman episode is reflecting an error on his part, right? He had to be honest about his uh, deep and uh, emotionally felt uh, values that led him to what you might think was an error, but if you were, you know, smart like him, you would see that they were actually, uh, you know, part of a broader project, which is real big of him, you know? Um so yeah, uh, truth be told, actually, the honesty is the problem. This is who they are, right? This ridiculous exercise in ass covering and the construction of straw men, the refusal of any real critique, even to dispute it, and backhanded self-aggrandizement, this creation of themselves as the discerning, thoughtful ones in this sea of uh, Twitter-born, 280-character ideologues. Uh, yeah, that's them. That's them, and it's a whole... I don't even want to say generation. It's a whole uh, clade of establishment-left intellectuals. I think they got here into this ridiculous position um, due to, like they themselves might say, uh, particularly Sitman, deeply felt values, but not the ones that they're talking about. Uh, the fact that they can't, it doesn't even seem to occur to them to have taken any other approach to this situation, I think is indicative that these problems run deeper than their podcast and into the intellectual left more broadly. Um. <laughs> I guess uh, if I were to get into the specific problems beyond the lack of meaningful engagement with criticism, 
what's actually wrong here here's here's kind of a useful i think diagnostic it's very clear that sitman and adler bell are more comfortable sitting down across from someone like nate hawkman who before the son and rads before whatever else uh we at least knew he was a transphobe who thought that trans people should not exist that uh, the life led by uh, gay people is a life that shouldn't be led. That Black Lives Matter it was a conspiracy to harm whites. That uh, the Trump movement was in some way right about things, even if he didn't like Trump himself. These are not the positions of somebody who has a lot worthwhile to say or... If it is, there would need to be some, those were his positions. He didn't have anything extra of any substance, okay? He he didn't like corporate America. Well, big fucking whoop. Like, that's not enough to merit listening. I, I, you can stop by fucking any 7-Eleven and find people with similar ideas and probably a less lame, stilted way of expressing them. But it's clear that they're more comfortable sitting across with someone like Haw- sitting across a table with someone like Hawkman than they are with sitting across an anti-fascist. And to get at a point that they didn't address, because I think it was very clear that they preferred to address these moralistic points about how about no platforming or whatever that they could then turn into. Uh, this intellectual posturing on their part, the problem really is less that they had this guy on. The problem is a 23-year-old baby fascist tricked them. Tricked them into thinking that he was this smart, earnest guy because both the hosts and by no means just them, a whole broad swath of the left commentariat and especially left liberals are easily taken in by performances of earnestness in erudition and that credulity only goes one way and that way is right they do not extend similar credulity similar uh, the one critically quoted said that they treated uh, Hawkman like a like a favorite nephew, like they were these indulgent rich uncles, uh, sort of uh, uh, you know chucking, uh, making chucking noises and patting the head of an indulged nephew who had who had been naughty. And I think that's there's something to that. But you're not you're not going to get those head pats from these guys if you fucking wanted their patronizing bullshit head pats uh if you are to their left if you actually organize especially if you actively counter fascism uh so yeah hookman hawkman rooked them and i could tell you because i did follow the twitter whatever a little bit at least is not just me but many people told them that that was a problem they had that the problem they had was that there was no intellectual meat to anything Hawkman was saying, that he was palpably insincere, and that they knew he was a fascist. 
because of his other positions that he had made clear. This is something that happens all the time. This has been happening at least since 2016, when you started having those dapper fascism articles uh, being put out by the Times and the Atlantic and whoever the fuck else. These articles like, oh my goodness, can you believe this person who wants a white ethnostate also has a haircut and uh, a day job and and a mortgage and a wife? It's like, well, yeah, actually, I can believe that. I can believe that because I've actually spent time learning about these things. I've spent time paying attention to the right. And I have a perspective that allows me to incorporate such seemingly unincorporable facts of existence like bitter racism and a bourgeois existence. It shouldn't be that hard. I'm not, I'm not special. I'm not the only one with this perspective. I learned this perspective from others. And they could learn it too. I don't think they're stupid. Uh, but yeah, a, a 23-year-old baby fascist uh, tricked men who were paid to be smart, uh, trolled them, uh, rooked them, and they're fine with that. Uh, to the extent they're, they're not fine with it, they're not fine with it because uh, it caused uh, lesser folk on Twitter who are supposedly on their same side to uh, inconvenience them with their criticisms. Uh, you know, they, they claim that having these sort of right-wingers on is part of their mission, uh, but not having anyone on who actually knows about these people, right? Who actually studies them and deals with them uh, with an agenda towards countering them, which gives you a different perspective. You could say that anti-fascism is wrong. I disagree, but you could say it, whatever. But at least it provides a different perspective. If you also think that Nate Hockman is wrong, which they do, I don't believe that they're sympathetic to his positions at all. I don't think these guys are like some kind of fascist sympathizers. If you can have that guy on, why is it so impossible to even conceive the idea, even to even to come up with a meaningful counter to it, the idea that maybe you could have somebody with a different perspective on dealing with fascism than you have? Because, you know, let me tell you, uh, we had their number. We had the number of Hawkman. We had the number of the dapper Nazis of Identity Europa and the alt-right, which if you remember through everybody for a fucking loop, uh, circa 2015, 2016, right? The the books that came out of that were, are some of the most embarrassing artifacts I have on my shelves. Uh, just the sheer overthinking and under-analysis that you get. Uh, we had the number of Richard Hanania and of Pedro Gonzalez, who are the other two uh, intellectuals, because of course, you know, these guys had to as part of covering their ass, they couldn't just make that episode about Hawkman, right? They had to make it about a broader thing that's not just their fault. Um, to uh, So they discussed these other two figures who were getting some traction in the outside world. Richard Hanania as a popular substack, uh, and were exposed as being just garden variety bigots. We knew that from the beginning. In part, we knew it from knowing their records, uh, 
you know, that I guess people on the the uh, heights, such as they are of descent, did not deign to learn. Uh, or I, I guess that's not fair for Hanani. It is fair for Hawkman. Uh, but, you know, your more established uh, left writers didn't deign to do the level of uh, legwork that anti-fascists have done into these people in the past. And also because of our perspective, right? It's not just putting the work in, though, frankly, I think that the establishment left is a good deal lazier than the anti-fascist left or any way those portions of it that do actual anti-fascism, right? I'm not saying that everyone who says, oh, go punch a Nazism, meaningful anti-fascist. They're not. And that's actually something that <laughs> many of us who do the practice complain about. Um, there's also a question of perspective. It's not. It's also not just a matter of further left versus more centrist left. I do think that plays into it, but I believe the hosts of Know Your Enemy and the people at Descent and the people at all these other magazines at Corey Robin, Rick Perlstein and whoever that they despise fascism and with the pot, I don't know if Perlstein is necessarily a socialist, but that the socialists among them really do want to see an end to capitalism, perhaps a more protracted, negotiated end than I think is realistic, but fine. I believe them. Uh, so I don't think it's just a matter of us being further to the left. I do think it is a matter of the relationship between practice and theory. I'm not entirely satisfied with that framing, but I do think that if you decide that combating fascism is something that you need to take seriously, on its own terms, not as part and parcel of some other project, though it may be. I regard anti-fascism as being part and parcel of socialism, but I also consider it worth doing in and of itself. If it's not something you're doing to posture, like however many social media posters, uh, when anti-fascism has one of its waves of popularity with the hoi polloi um, of... Uh, you know, of Twitter, I can I can see why that might irritate uh, your anti-anti-fascists because it irritates me, an anti-fascist. If you take it seriously as a practice in and of itself, you gain a degree of perspective because you have to think about what your ideas mean when they are put to the test, not of just of arguments in magazines or on podcasts, though I think those are valuable. Uh, you have to try them out. You have to see what they mean in practice in terms of organizing, in terms of getting groups of people, many of whom don't know each other, to all try to do something unusual, in some cases quite risky, uh, all at the same time. You have to motivate people. You have to educate people. You have to make sure that your concepts have some bearing to reality that if you get it wrong, the stakes are higher than some guy might show you up a little bit, that you might lose an argument 
you might miss the train of intellectual fashion or of the discourse and see your rivals hop on earlier. If you get the analysis wrong in anti-fascism, there's much more serious consequences. And here, I don't see punching Nazis as being the be-all, end-all of anti-fascism. And this actually kind of does go to my point, where if you have to put your ideas into practice, you have to actually think about what that practice will look like, because the you have to have some sort of orientation to a goal. My goal is to disrupt fascist organizing. Practically speaking, that usually does not mean starting street fights. I think, and this is frankly beside the point, but I'll say it, I think that if you go around believing and saying and proclaiming many of the things that the far right, which increasingly is just the right, globally believes, then yeah, I think, frankly, you cede your right to be in public peaceably because you have identified yourself as someone who wants to destroy a significant portion of the population for no reason other than barely your own narrow benefit, mostly out of ideological madness. But that isn't the point. The point of what we do isn't to feel better. The point of, of what we do isn't to make a statement, though statements are part of what we do. The point is to deter their organizing and, not for nothing, to protect our own. Because if you needed a, a reason for anti-fascism, if you need a reason for getting out to the street and putting yourself on the line or supporting others who do, not everybody can do that. Not everybody can be out in public doing these things, and that's fine. There's so many ways to contribute. But if you need a reason, here's one. Um, left to their own devices, fascists will disrupt. Socialist, communist, anarchist, progressive, and eventually liberal organizing because they believe it's all the same and it's all degenerate, um, you know, cultural Marxist, whatever, right? It's, it actually is a form of reproductive labor for, for any kind of leftist organizing anywhere that there is a significant amount of fascists on the street, which these days is more or less everywhere. I do think there's a time element here that, among other things, we who organize anti-fascism but also other forms of organization as well, you would figure people would get more perspective on this from things like labor organizing or other forms of political organizing, but it does seem that anti-fascism is somewhat at the thin edge of the wedge of this stuff. The times change and the threat changes and you need to change your perspective with it. It doesn't mean that you change your values or even necessarily your goals, but things like the definition of fascism, well, intellectually, I think it makes sense to have finely grained, uh, detailed delineations of fascist versus authoritarian versus right populist versus nationalist versus on and on. I think that's great. I have, I, I've read a lot of it. I've engaged with that literature. It has 
influence my practice and the practice of those around me. But you also need to think about what it means practically when you're organizing. That is why I take a broader perspective, a broader definition of what is fascist, which is still rooted in ideas, right? It's not just, well, they're out in the street and I don't like them. Though being out in the street is actually a pretty important part of an activist definition of fascism, right? One of the one of the kind of uh, you know somewhat comedic, but I think real enough definitions of fascism for a leftist organizer is a fascist is the right wingers who will come and disrupt your meetings, right? So yeah, to to cite an example, I would hear from critics of anti-fascism on social media: George W. Bush probably responsible for more mayhem and death than Donald Trump. Uh, Certainly at this point, we'll see what the future holds. Uh, Anti-fascists, I mean, I'm sure many of them were involved with protests against the Iraq war because anti-fascism usually isn't the only thing we do, but did not mobilize the same way they mobilized due to the Trump campaign and what came after. The reason for that is Anti-fascism is a different kind of approach. We don't just do it because fascists are uniquely bad, though they are. We do it because it wasn't followers of George W. Bush or to cite my state, Charlie Baker, who's also a real piece of shit in his own way, uh, trying to break up our meetings. That was followers of Trump. And that was people inspired by Trump who may or may not like Trump anymore or ever, but who were inspired by his campaign to come out into the open with their fascist bullshit and that it was our responsibility to protect ourselves from which among other things if you're really going to do that you need to be able to also take the offensive that is based on the analysis of the situation that we saw in times like 2017 and there are other times where that might change uh we have you have to be adaptive you have to think about changes in how power and ideology express themselves at given moments of time i don't think it's a coincidence that sitman comes from a straussian background which tends to treat ideas in this platonist way that they exist in this fucking realm of uh you know pure form they don't change they don't need to change now i'm sure if you asked him he would say yeah yeah sure ideas change but i don't know if he acts like it and i don't know if the others act like it at least with sitman there might be the possibility that that's due to an actual intellectual commitment which i might disagree with but at least it's thought out i think for a lot of anti-anti-fascists they just don't want to think that hard about it they they have this set of assumptions that they went in with they may or may not have tested it against some kind of practice on the Bernie campaign or in their grad student union, not shitting on either of those. I've participated in both. Uh, And they've learned what lessons they're going to learn. They're primarily interested in getting their ideas across on their platforms. uh, And they don't have to adjust that much. They don't have to, Uh, really change if the situation changes the same way you have to do if you're going to be an anti-fascist 
the same way you do if you're going to apply these things rigorously. And I don't know, I mean, probably at least part of what attracted me to anti-fascism in the first place, there's probably a lot of things, but one of them, I think, was the appeal of attempting to bring a different kind of rigor to my intellectual practice. I think that criticism could use, not necessarily to think of itself as having these concrete effects, though that might be a part of what I'm calling for. I'm not saying that anyone should avoid, quote-unquote, platforming someone because of the material harm that they might do. Now, there might be material harm, and you should maybe think about that. Uh, The classic case of this, one of the things that brought uh, no platforming into the American conversation was the situation of Milo Yiannopoulos and his tour in 2018. 16 2017 this is when the first kind of antifa brawls in berkeley got noticed picked up by the mass media and people saying oh they just want to ban this guy they want to no platform him for his views he's too controversial well maybe some people thought that frankly i among other things i think that fascism is a blot on the face of the planet and I would like to efface that blot wherever possible, wherever advisable. But there was a more serious reason, which was Milo Yiannopoulos, at his tour dates, used his platform to out gay students, trans students, undocumented immigrant students, to subject them to harassment from his bullshit followers. Right? Like, that was a reason we wanted to no platform him. Because you really have to believe that the only thing the platform is for is some, I almost, I want to, I kind of want to say platinist again, some platinist uh, fucking hippy dippy exchange of ideas in a vacuum that have no outside impact. And if that's the case, then why the fuck are you so dedicated to it? What's the goddamn point? Is it just art? Like, Is it just that you can't paint? Like, fuck off. I believe that ideas have some kind of meaning. Uh, I believe that, among other things, they are a way in which people make a stand in this world where they apply uh, a, a way through which they apply their will and their abilities to construct the world further in an image of their desire of of what they want to see this is also where and i'm not trying to go after somebody for their religion i'm uh i come from a catholic background too actually um i suppose i went in a different direction uh i i no longer consider myself religious uh but i get i get a love for humanity for its many expressions, including its flaws. To me, if you believe that people are as equally human in their flaws, in their in their willing sins, wouldn't it seem 
that the way to respect that humanity was to treat their decisions seriously. To say that they, in the fullness of judgment, decided to make a stand for something they believed in. And I, as someone who believes in something diametrically opposed, or just regular opposed, uh, am going to take that seriously enough to engage in a struggle against them and to not patronize them by treating them to a uh, affection that they either did not ask for or only asked for as a way to weaken you because they don't take you and your ideas and your desire for a world that reflects your values seriously. To me, that's not love. Maybe maybe I'm just, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just not Christian enough, but that doesn't sound like love to me. It doesn't sound like Christian love to me. So, I don't know, I might as well, uh, I think I've said most of what I want to say. Um, I guess and I, I might I might clip this out and put this towards the beginning, you know, fun with uh fun with audio editing uh anti-fascism isn't just about punching people uh it isn't even just about stuff in the street there's a million ways you can help there's research there's uh writing there's doing things like dox defense right people tend to associate doxing with the left it is something we do. It's something I've participated in that I'm proud to have participated in because we do it to deter fascism and because I take fascists at their word that they believe that they are in a struggle, a fight, and I will meet them and defeat them. Uh, not by any means. You know, I'm not saying I, I, I'm willing to do anything, but yes, I'm willing to dox people, but so are they. And so dox defense is important. You wind up people, mostly women uh, or trans people or people of color, getting harassed, stalked, swatted, what have you, as a consequence of being doxxed. There's ways to help with that. You could help with logistical support. In my part of the country, in New England, we have had good success with a combination of doxing and good intelligence work, actually doing the legwork of figuring out who these people are, their employers, what they've done, getting, making that information legible uh, and making it tell a clear story and getting it out to people and through mass rallies, sometimes really big ones, like the one a week after Unite the Right in Charlottesville. Wonder where Nate Hawkman was for that. Uh, that, that had about 40,000 people in it. That was, I think, a signal defeat for the alt-right. Um, and some, but oftentimes just smaller things. Uh, meeting fascists where they were, not running up and punching them, but showing that people were willing to put themselves out there to say no, that we aren't doing this, that we're going to prevent you from having the sort of vision that you want to have uh, for yourself and for your, how your day is going to work, the image you want to put out, because like so many people who make their lives on social media, <laughs> uh, they're people of image, right? Right. Much like how there, there, there's only one way I would compare 
the left anti-anti-fascists I'm talking about to fascists. They're not fascists, but here's one way they're similar. They're creatures of image. At the end of the day, they're more interested in an image of the intellectual life and their place in it than they are in doing what needs to be done and adjusting their thoughts accordingly. Adjusting their approach, even just acknowledging. I, I keep going back to that, but even just acknowledging other points of view on the, on the left. Uh, whereas the right, in a much more simplistic and stupid way, the fascist right is about imagery. And we show up and we disrupt the picture, usually without having to punch anybody. Uh, and a lot of the times the danger comes from the cops, uh, either instead of or along with the fascists. So there's a lot of ways to get involved. Uh, I suggest, even if you don't want to get involved in anti-fascism, getting involved in some sort of work and taking it sufficiently seriously, not just seeing it as a way to win some kind of intellectual merit badge. Uh, you know, oh, I went out and, you know, uh, got some signatures. Well, that's great, but take it seriously as part of a campaign to advance our values, our vision of the world, to defeat an enemy, uh, to uphold the right, uh, in this case, the left, uh, and allow that to have a meaningful impact on your intellectual project. Because I think that helps expand one's world, one's worldview, you, you gain and exercise intellectual tools that you either might not have or might not use that much. You gain a rigor to your criticism that you will not otherwise have, as evidenced by the inability of most of the establishment left from dissent to chapo uh, to even meaningfully acknowledge the existence of other ways of doing things, of moving our project forward, and different visions, uh, other than those that already sit at the table with them. So, so much for my first concept, commitment. I believe this is an important way to commit. And just briefly, the subject of contempt. Uh, clearly, uh, I think these establishment left figures have contempt for us. You have probably seen some contempt for them, though, honestly, I think that there's uh, much clearer and easier ways uh, to gain my respect than in the respect of other anti-fascists than there would be for any of us uh, to gain any of theirs, because at the end of the day, it's kind of about career and we don't have anything to offer them on that score. Uh, but I am familiar with contempt. Uh less in my contempt for the relatively minor follies of careerist leftists, and more, I have contempt for fascism. Uh, I actualized my contempt in the streets with thousands of people, and it made an impact on this world. Not a permanent one, Not we didn't solve fascism, but we have defeated it at times, and caused it to change what it could do, uh, deter it from doing things it would otherwise do. Uh, how about you? How has your contempt actually been able to actualize in a positive way? Has it at all, other than benefiting your career? 
Think about it. Bye.